Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Eric Helms from 3D Muscle Journey. Eric was previously on the podcast back on episode 101, where Eric came on to discuss about his muscle and strength pyramid training manual. This time I had Eric come back on to discuss about his muscle and strength pyramid nutrition manual. In this episode, we covered the first three levels of Eric's uh, nutritional hierarchy in his nutrition manual, which is energy balance, macronutrients and fiber, and micronutrients and water intake. So this is actually the first part of what would be a three-part series where we cover Eric's uh, muscle and strength pyramid nutritional manual. In part two, we get into meal timing and frequency. And in the final part, which as of now still has to be recorded, we'll get into supplements and a few other topics that Eric covers within his nutritional manual. But for now, guys, I hope you enjoy part one. Eric, of course, is full of so much great information. This was a really great episode, and I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Eric Helms, it is an absolute pleasure, and it's an absolute honor to have you come back onto my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. I'm pretty sure that everyone listening will know who you are, but just for maybe the one or two who have been living under a rock, just give us a a brief background. Well, first, it's an honor to be back on. Thanks for having me. Um, And yeah, for sure. I'm... uh, as I like to say, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to lift heavy things and try to get big and who got embroiled in, in being interested in the uh, the science behind it all as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I've been a uh, uh, natural bodybuilding and powerlifting coach uh, under the auspices of 3DMJ with my, my cohorts um, since about 2009 and um, gotten pretty heavily, heavily involved in academics. And I'm just at the tail end of my PhD in strength conditioning at the moment. I did a master's as well, uh, looking at macronutrient and protein manipulation and dieting uh, strength athletes. And uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, I'm a coach, I'm a writer, and uh, just uh, here to help the folks in my community do what they're doing healthier and better. Great stuff. So last time I had you on, we spoke about your training manual which was you know, an absolutely uh, outstanding manual. So that was the muscle and strength training manual. And now we're going to talk about the nutri- uh, the muscle and strength nutrition manual. Now, really, they're called the muscle and strength training pyramid and muscle and strength uh, nutrition pyramid. So um, what we really want to get into is this hierarchy for the nutrition made. And there's obviously a YouTube video series that I'll link in the, in the show notes. But I suppose the first thing I'm going to ask is, what, 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 why did you feel the need to uh, write this manual? I know it was a product of the video, so maybe why did you feel the need to put the videos out that eventually became the manual? That's a good question, yeah. So this was around the time I had uh, just moved to New Zealand, and I was uh, doing a lot of coaching uh, because it was a, quite an expensive move. And uh, unlike my PhD, where I've had the opportunity to uh, kind of bring down my coaching a little bit to allow me to spend more of my energy and time on my PhD. I had to just, you know, make ends meet, really. Um, fortunately, I like coaching. So I was doing probably five uh, Skype consultations a week, um, which I would do first thing in the morning before, you know, heading out to Millennium and, and AUT to work on my 
my thesis. And I found that everyone was having the same problems. Um, I, I talked to a lot of very well-intentioned, uh, intelligent people who didn't necessarily not know what I was telling them as far as the actual nutrition information, but had a really tough time putting it into any kind of cohesive format. You know, they'd read, basically they were, they were all experiencing, you know, paralysis by analysis or information overload, and they, they didn't have any way to take all the little sound bites and put them into some kind of actionable plan. So I started to record this video series or, or conceptualize uh, this kind of hierarchy uh, that was based on the coaching I was doing, where I would just help people kind of prioritize what they were, uh, all, all the information they had, and, and and develop something that would help them get to their goals. And that, out of that kind of uh, frustration I had with just seeing all these people who were frustrated, uh, is where the the hierarchy was born, and how I got the concept of putting the cart before the horse, um, and how I thought it'd be really helpful to have a conceptual uh, kind of diagrammatic idea of, of how to put everything into its place so that someone could actually move forward instead of being, you know, mired in, in all of these conflicting or seemingly conflicting uh, sound bites. What I really liked about your manual was you didn't just dive like straight into um, like the more sort of nutritional science aspects. So like the energy balance and the macros and the micros, which we'll get to. Uh, you started off talking about mindset and materials and also a bit about behavior and lifestyle. Why did you feel that was so important? Yeah, you know, unlike training, uh, everybody eats, you know, yeah. but not everybody is, is, is starts off doing resistance training. So you, when you start modifying someone's food intake or asking them to do so, or if you try to do that with yourself, um, you're really modifying your lifestyle. In, in a way that is a little more invasive than just, you know, spending an hour a day going to the gym, you know. So there's there's big issues around adherence uh, in, in different ways than you will see with with, with training. And um, being able to, to cope with that and have it do, done so in a healthy manner is, is quite a big hurdle that I think some of us who have been in the game a long time don't always appreciate especially if we've come from a little more of kind of a just-do-it mindset. And um, so, yeah, there's a big emphasis on adherence and, and setting yourself up to be successful um, and having a mindset that is going to be you know, useful towards achieving your goals because, you know, the, the pyramid books are very much focused towards uh, not only just general nutrition, but, but with a big focus on people who might be interested in competitive uh, physique sport. Uh, or, or weight class restricted uh, strength sport. Um, so it's very common in those endeavors to have disordered eating or not the best relationship with food because there wasn't enough appreciation for all those modifications one has to make. So uh, I thought that it would be very important, as well as, as, well as Andrea and Andy made. Uh, I think it might have been actually Andrea's idea to put that uh, up first. Mm. Um, or was it Andy's? I can't remember, but they're both smart people, so it could have been either one of them. <laughs> to, to have that up first to really make sure we, we set the foundation for the skill set needed to move forward to, to really kind of integrate the rest of the information. Great stuff, great stuff. And, and even then, um, you know, what I love to, and, and we can maybe speak about this uh, at the end to the behavior and lifestyle chapter at the end, you know, mm -hmm. we, we start to incorporate, you know, this idea of, you know, um, 
friends and family and and you know like uh, social aspects and um you know listening to your body and and you know like they were just very very um I felt important aspects to have in this book because again a lot of books you just get are just kind of purely focusing on the science and they're not really you know delving into the other massive aspect which is you know changing behavior and then the whole psychological aspect of nutrition and food because one thing is that like nutrition and food are they're so tied into our emotions it's just like people really kind of just cross over that i mean how many times have we probably spoke and particularly people who are foodies who speak of oh remember last christmas remember oh that was unbelievable that and you're already like reliving the moment and so just when you know people kind of just like just know your calories just know your macros like there's this whole psychological aspect and i like to like you touched on that as well so um probably we'll get into that maybe when we're closing up because i i really did appreciate that last chapter as i read it you know um, for sure yeah yeah one one uh one so we'll start off with the pyramids um obviously behavior and lifestyle as i said was was uh at the actual foundation of it but we'll, we'll get to that towards the end so if we just start off with level one the energy balance one thing i just want to ask you is what what is your preferred method of determining energy balance there's so many ways out there and i suppose maybe even starting off this question First off, I, I think anyone that's listens knows that there's you're never ever gonna fully one hundred percent get anyone's energy balance correct. It's just impossible. So we're always just going with ballpark. But for you personally, what are your favorite methods? I like to work with real data, you know. Um, sure you can do something like, you know, ten times body weight in pounds and use use an activity multiplier, which is what I do in the book. Um, as kind of the, the not preferred method. Yeah. But uh, in an ideal world, um, and that's another reason why the mindset of materials needs to be first is that if you don't have the, the skill set or the resources to be able to get accurate um, assessments of your calorie intake and your body weight and then the, the change in those values over time, uh, then it's going to be uh, not very useful number to, to get quote-unquote real-world data when you don't know how to collect data. Yeah. So, so anyway... Um, uh, first, you have to teach someone to accurately track calories or track calories consistently, which is probably more important than the accuracy. Um, and then, to, you know, track their, their body weight. And then you simply have them take a couple weeks and look at the seven-day average change in their body weight from week to week and then correlate that with the, the calorie intake they've had, with, which hopefully is not massively modified by the process of tracking food, but often will be. Uh, depending on what their lifestyle was before. And then you can get a rough relationship to uh, whether or not they're in a surplus or deficit or in maintenance. Um, it's a little more complicated when you're dealing with a uh, woman, woman. And that's mm-hmm. something I want to go into in the second edition of the book is how to do that when you have a menstrual cycle that can often uh, throw, throw false water weight changes at you that might make you think you're in a surplus or deficit when you aren't. Um, so you have to actually be in the same phase of the menstrual cycle or just use a longer period. You could probably use, you know, no, no pun intended there. You could probably use a, you know, a two or three week period, uh, four week period even, and just look at a whole month, uh, to combine, to compare averages and get a better idea of, of that relationship. And from there, then, then you actually know, um, what you roughly need to maintain weight and you can, uh, work towards, um, you know, whatever goal you're looking for, whether that's weight gain or weight loss. It also highlights a lot of issues that you will probably have tracking in the future anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you struggle with the process of just tracking your, your baseline calorie intake, 
that's going to make you aware of a lot of the hurdles that might uh, befall you as you actually try to diet or, or try to make that a, a more regular part of your, um, you know, your ritual, at least for the time period where you're going to be, you know, trying to lose weight or track calories or what have you. Yeah, I, I personally, and you were the first person I actually heard to try the, you know, this method of kind of spend two weeks weighing and tracking sort of your food and, and your body weight to kind of see where your average intake is at. And, you know, I, I, I really liked that concept, so I did, you know, to, to kind of get it more accurate, rather than taking this idea of multiplying an activity factor. But again, I suppose it's, it's where you're at and, and your time constraints, I suppose. But I, I did like that method that you brought up in the book, for sure. Yeah, and that's what we did. That, I mean, that, that's what we've done in our, our practice at 3DMJ for forever. And it, it works out nicely because we'll often have a, um, a, we can only start so many people in the same week without overwhelm, overwhelming a given coach. So often someone will, will sign up and we'll go, right, so your start date's in three weeks. Um, mm. And then, you know, for, for that interim period, here are some really quick kind of starting guidelines. I'd like you to do this, this, and this. Oh, and take this sheet and please track your body weight and your uh, and your, your calorie intake and your macros, and here's how you do that. Um, so we, it's a very useful way to get preliminary data. So you can, you know, take what they uh, filled out on their, you know, client intake form, and then go, oh, interestingly enough, it seems like um, their calorie needs aren't quite what they thought they were, or things have changed, or they're perfectly in line with it, and you can modify your plan even more. Also, you can you can see whether or not that that person has the requisite skill set to, uh, you know, track calories and, and do so accurately. And if they're running into problems, you know, just in a three week interim period of, of not modifying nutrition or only slightly modifying it and tracking, uh, then that, that can give you insight into potential hurdles as a coach that you're going to run into. So that's, it's been uh, something we learned in the trenches that's very useful. So yeah, just adapting it to the book was easy. So the next question is one I've been dying to ask you now since um, since I knew I was going to have you back on talking about nutrition, and it's the concept of uh, the rate of weight loss, but even more so in the second half of this question, the rate of weight gain. Because lately, uh, I was actually discussing this with some of the students where I teach, and you know we were kind of talking about realistic um, realistic muscle mass gain. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I was like, hold on, let me check, uh, let me check back in the manual. So I went back to the computer and looked. And then I was like, I remember reading uh, Mike Isertel's Renaissance Diet, and I was thinking, I'm really sure he had like way higher gains. And and I'm thinking too that I was like, I think they're too fast. Now apparently he's said some, somewhere on a on a other interview or uh, wherever that 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 was misprinted or not printed right, because he was saying something like you could gain one, you can lose one to two pounds of weight per week, but you could also gain it in terms of muscle. And I was thinking, I don't think that's realistic. Really, he has like two, like muscle at two pounds a week. Now, if I'm completely misquoting Mike, he's well able to correct that. But because I remember reading then in your in this manual, you had them at a really more sort of realistic level in terms of, of weight gain. So, so, so the question I'm just posing to you is, what are realistic weight loss rates and realistic lean muscle mass rates? And obviously, it's going to depend if someone's a beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And maybe give us your definition of what you mean by beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, I'll get into it in, in kind of in, in sequential order. Yeah. So you want to just talk about primarily the weight, weight gain or weight loss and weight gain? Oh, b- both, and you can start whichever you want. Like I suppose the, the, the weight loss one wasn't so much, I don't want to say controversial, but that's confusing because nearly mm. most most places you read will say that, you know, about a pound to two pounds, and obviously that's going to slow, it'll be a diminished return. 
I suppose I'm more interested in what are realistic weight gains, but you can you can touch on the weight loss maybe first and maybe how you might go about that in terms of how much of a caloric deficit and how you determine that. And you did you did mm, sure. you, you did speak a bit about you know the the three thousand five hundred sort of thing and you touched on that a little bit. So I, I don't know if you, want, you you can get into as much detail as you want in this, Eric. It's up to you. Sounds good. Yeah. So I, I think just for a brief primer, um, one to two pounds a week is a very commonly cited uh, rate of weight loss, and mm-hmm. that works for most people, but um, people who tend to weigh a lot or who also have a small frame or very short, uh, that, that can that can be a little outside of uh, what might be appropriate. And I, based on you know a lot of the, the data that, that we have, because we do know that if you try to lose weight too fast, um, you can lose weight, uh, but more and more of it becomes lost as a lead body mass. So you know as you erode the number of calories you can use, it's more difficult to hold on to, to muscle mass. Um, so anyway, uh, I like to use about 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week. So this scales nicely, whether you're, you know, a five foot two female, or if you're a six foot three, uh, male who has, you know, a, a lot of muscle mass and also a fair amount of fat mass, uh, so that, you know, one to two pounds might be too slow in that second condition or, or too fast in that first one. Um, so it scales nicely to, to body mass levels so that it can protect against, uh, lean body mass loss. Um, and as you said, there's a 3,500 calorie quote unquote, uh, rule, uh, which is really more of kind of a useful guideline mm-hmm. in that there's roughly uh, that much in one pound of body fat. So if you were to set a 3,500 calorie deficit within a week, uh, and you were to lose only body fat, uh, and it wasn't confused by, uh, water weight losses. And if, uh, you weren't confused by a reduction in energy expenditure, you would mathematically see roughly a pound lost of fat. Of course, it doesn't work out like that perfectly. You know, water weight losses, changes in energy expenditure, a loss of lean tissue can all confound that a little bit, but it's still a useful way to kind of set up target calories to achieve that deficit. So um, I'll leave the, the cutting there. But yeah, actually, you know, funny enough, um, Dr. Isretel and I have, have talked online a number of times. Um, we, we, we converse every once in a while because, you know, we... We agree on, on the big big rock stuff, but every once in a while we'll find that our philosophies differ and it generates discussion. Uh, and he's a smart guy and he's open-minded, so it's always good to talk to him about things. But um, yeah, he I don't think he thinks that you can put on one to two pounds of, of muscle per week. Mm-hmm. I think he thinks that gaining one to two pounds of weight per week um, ensures that you're in a, an anabolic state yeah. and that you can then cyclically cut and it's not a big deal. Uh, and, he, and he felt that, um, that going slower than that uh, d- didn't really consistently result in muscle gain in the real world. Mm-hmm. And um, that said, though, he he, um, he has since made a few Facebook posts and talked about it. And, and he said, you know, if that doesn't work, go slower. And that, that there's a, a useful uh, – uh, the, the, the rates that I suggest are useful in, in instances where – uh, you know, that doesn't work yeah. as effectively. So, you know, I think it's important that uh, to, to acknowledge that, you know, we all, as as practitioners, we all get a little biased by our own, you get inevitably biased by your own practices if you are a known quantity. So what I mean by that is that people who hire 3DMJ these days don't do so out of complete blindly. Yeah, I searched Google, I found you, and I decided that I like your page. That that almost never happens. 
most of the time they're coming and signing up at 3DFJ because they're aware of who we are. We're a known quantity. They've watched a podcast. They've read a book. Uh, they've read a, a blog article. And they have an idea of what our philosophies are. And they're already bought into it. So people, to some degree, self-select to come work with us. And that kind of reinforces our experience of, oh, this is the way we should be doing it. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to have practitioners who don't fully agree on everything. Uh, and it's just important that you give latitude for saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe the, the population you work with uh, tends to do better with that. And that's not my experience, but it certainly could be true. Um, so I, I certainly, um, even though the one to two pounds per week, uh, in terms of what I, what the evidence I think is available is probably too fast in my opinion. It's certainly conceivable that with the people, um, you know, Mike works with that, 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 that might be a, a better solution. And that's, you know, that's, 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 that's all good. Um, but anyway, there's, there's unfortunately not that much research on what are appropriate rates of weight gain. Mm. And, you know, I think it's understandable that in the past people would just kind of reverse the fat loss recommendation. Oh, you lose one to two pounds. Why not just gain one to two pounds? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's reasonable until you think about how energy expensive the process of gaining lean body mass is and how much you're going to gain even over a lifetime of training. You know, a, uh, a drug free trainee who's say, you know, five ten average height with pretty good genetics you know, if they train for 20 years, they might gain 30 pounds, you know, <laughs> of, of true muscle. Um, and, you know, so so when you look at how that's distributed over uh, their, their training careers, heavily weighted towards the beginning. You know, they're probably going to gain 80% of that in the first two years and then spend the next, you know, 28 years gaining the last 20% mm -hmm. in kind of this uh, ever-diminishing ever returns fashion. So... Um, giving a blanket one to two pound per week weight gain uh, doesn't really line up with, with that kind of model of what we see in the real world. Sure. Yeah. Uh, additionally, there's a pretty interesting study that, that Garth did, I want to say in 2011, but I might have the date wrong, maybe 2013. Uh, it's just kind of off the top of my head, where they had um, a group of well-trained athletes uh, go on a, a weight gain plan. And one of them one, one group was counseled by a dietitian to create a, uh, a surplus to try to gain pretty quickly because um, this is actually a pretty standard practice. I want to say they were trying to gain about a pound per week or more or less. Mm -hmm. And the other group was told, hey, just, just put yourself in a surplus and gain you know, at whatever rate you felt. And uh, when they finally did the math and got the statistics done on the two groups, it was, the nutritional counseling group was eating 600 calories more on average compared to the kind of self-counsel group. However, um, and that may seem like, oh, it sounds like nutritional counseling was more effective. And it was more effective to get them to do what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but apparently, what they are supposed to do had some negative consequences. Uh, there was no difference in the amount of lean body mass gained in the two groups. There was no difference in the amount of strength gained in the two groups. Um, the only thing different in performance was that the, the fast weight gain group lost a little bit of speed on their 40-meter dash <laughs> because they got fat um, and weighed more. And the the fat mass gain was five times that of the slow gain group and the fast gain group. Um, so essentially, I, I looked at, okay, well, what were the rates of weight gain in the uh, slow gain group compared to the, the fast, fast gain group? And I rounded them a little bit, and that's what became uh, kind of the recommendations that I – that I put in the book of 0.5 uh, 
to 1.5% of your body weight gain per month scaled to uh, your, your experience level or your training age, uh, better to say. Uh, and it wasn't like these, these guys in the study and gals weren't training hard. They basically took their sport-specific training and then overlaid on top of that four days per week of resistance training, uh, two, two days per week for each body part, kind of like an upper-lower split, and a pretty sound program if you look at the, the study, which is not always the case when you look at research. Sometimes there are concessions made that's not a very realistic training program. So they basically put an entire normal kind of training program that many people who are you know, lifting enthusiasts would do on top of whatever they're already doing uh, as far as sports-specific training. So you know, they threw a ton of new volume and new training at these people. So you would think uh, that they would be primed for, for relatively fast weight gain. Uh, and that they weren't, you know, these weren't like power lifters. They were, you know, athletes from other areas. So sure, they'd done lifting weights and strength conditioning and, and, and such, but uh, they weren't high level, uh, you know, muscle bound, you know, like bodybuilders or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you would expect that they would be able to gain relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, given that uh, and given what I've seen in the field and, uh, and everything, that's where those recommendations came from. Yeah. Uh, and that can be a little disheartening for people. Um, but I think when you, when you stretch it out and you think about realistic gains over a full year, I mean, would you be really mad if you put on 12 pounds of real muscle in an entire year that would completely transform your body, you know? So, um, and, 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 you know, you can be mad at reality or, or, and, and just keep banging your head against the wall, or you can just kind of suck it up and align what you do with, with reality and, and reap the benefits. Because I, I, I personally, I remember after my first six months or a year of training as a bodybuilder, I put on you know, 15, 20 pounds. And I expected that to continue and ate accordingly. And I just went through these cyclical periods of getting a little fatter than I was comfortable with without necessarily gaining muscle any faster. And it took me probably two years of stubbornness before I finally decided just to slow it down uh, and not just get you know, this kind of yo-yo fat look going, going on. So, um, so yeah. Um, but anyway, to, to address your question about how do I determine training age, that's a tough one mm-hmm. uh, because people can spend a lot of time spinning their wheels. I like to use um, the guidelines of how quickly you're making progress. So if you're still adding weight to the bar every single session, you know, you're, you're making gains like it was starting strength. Uh, you know, following Mark Ripto's program, and every week you're able to go up, you know, five, ten pounds on a lift for the same number of repetitions. You can probably safely gain at like 1.5 percent of your body weight per month. Uh, if you're only able to make progress on a week-to-week or a month-to-month basis, uh, and you're kind of what I would classify as an intermediate. And then finally, if you're having to go through, you know, full couple, couple meso cycles and then test your 1RM to make small gains. Um, or tested AMRAP, kind of if you were to use the, the principles of the training pyramid, that's when I would consider you advanced. And uh, so I, I like to use rate of performance increase uh, as a way to gauge the rate that you're actually making, uh, you know, muscle tissue gains. So it's a useful surrogate, I find. I'm sure it's not perfect. Um, but, but that's how I identify someone as their training age. Because I think uh, time alone or strength alone doesn't really give respect to you know, genetics or, or necessarily being misguided in the gym. That's great. So, so next thing then on the hierarchy then was obviously the, the macronutrient breakdown. And 
in the manual you go protein by gram per body body weight and then you go carbs and fats by percentages so i suppose maybe touch on you 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 did give some guidelines as to how much um how much of the calories you would give for fat determining if they were in a cut or a gaining phase and also protein you slightly tweaked as well depending if it was a cut or a gaining phase so Maybe just get into your macronutrients, how you calculate, how that changes between gaining and, and cutting. For sure, yeah, yeah. So, you know, more or less, the, the way I help people conceptualize the macronutrients is that protein is for build and repair, and then carbohydrates and fat are energy macronutrients, if you will, uh, and, and used at different intensities and at different thresholds of, of uh, activity level. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's not strictly true, though. We actually use a fair amount of protein, especially if you have a high-protein diet, uh, as energy. It's converted it through, through gluconeogenesis or, uh, in some cases, um, with certain ketogenic uh, amino acids into other substrates as well. But nonetheless, um, protein is not used to the same degree as fat and carbohydrate uh, for energy. So it makes sense to set it in relation to your body mass, since that's what it's being used for. And I, I roughly use the range of uh, 1.8 to 2.8 grams per kilogram of total body weight or 2 to 3 grams uh, per, per kilogram of, of lean body mass if you can get an accurate measure of your body composition. And then I, I, I basically use, I use the lower half of that range for when you're in a gaining period and the upper half of that range when you're in a dieting period. Uh, the reason why I separate the two is you tend to get higher satiety levels when you are eating more protein. And there's at least preliminary theoretical evidence uh, that, that protein becomes more important in a calorie deficit uh, mm. to prevent muscle loss. Um, but you also don't want to go too high in your protein intake because that, when you're budgeting calories while you're dieting, that's going to take away from the number of grams of carbs and fat you can have, which mm. can you know, affect health, affect your training performance, which would arguably have a larger impact on muscle retention uh, than simply protein alone. Um, so, yeah, depending on, on what audience I talk to, some people accuse me of having too high a protein intake, and other people accuse me of being too low if I'm talking to a bunch of old-school bodybuilders or if I'm talking to, um, you know, sports scientists who are, you know, kind of, I guess, more rigid in their nutrition setups. So, anyway, um, I set protein first, and then normally I do fat as a percentage of calories, but I do provide some body weight minimums. Uh, because often when you're dealing with uh, dieters, sometimes calories get quite low. And I wouldn't want to see calories go below about 0.5 grams per kilogram uh, from fat uh, just to prevent any kind of uh, health issues. Because uh, there's a lot of things that fat does in the body. Uh, you know, it, it affects hormonal status. <clears throat> it's a transporter for fat-soluble vitamins. Um, and there, there's a lot of components in the body and cells that are, are made of fat. So obviously fat is important in the body. Um, carbohydrates are, are more of a, a pure energy source. So normally after I set fat, I'll have someone use, use remaining calories for carbohydrate. Uh, and then I have a scaled percentage of fat, depending on whether you're dieting or whether you're in a surplus that goes from 15% to 40% roughly. Uh, and I think that's be based on personal preference and, and data and history of, of what you found works best for you. Because obviously if you have a higher fat intake, you can have a lower carbohydrate intake. And uh, if you have a lower fat intake, you're going to have a higher carbohydrate intake. And, um, you know, adherence and the ability to fuel performance being the most important pieces of that puzzle. 
so that uh, you can kind of have a variable slider there um, to kind of uh, modify based on what you found works best for you and your personal preferences to enhance adherence. Yeah, the, the big thing that struck me with both your manuals, both the training and nutrition manual, it's it's kind of like, like to be honest, when when I read when I read both manuals, I was like, if I was to write a manual on training and nutrition, this is exactly how I would have worded nearly everything in the manual. But I guess so, I guess sometimes you kind of go, but I don't know if I've anything to really back this up, you know. And and then like you're kind of even yourself, you're saying, and even though you've plenty of references within these manuals in terms of um, scientific papers. Or research papers like you even touched on yourself that some of the concepts you're talking about actually don't have great science around them so a lot of it is coming down to just some common sense stuff and things we've already seen within the trenches you know um yeah it's it's a funny thing because a lot of the times you know science is only equipped to answer certain questions mm -hmm. you know um and there's always that element where day-to-day -day op operations as a practitioner in the field whether you're a nutritionist or a strength conditioning coach or a personal trainer, you know, it's science is really not equipped to answer that. You know, yeah. you, you can compare one condition versus another a supplement versus not having it, you know, sets of three to five versus sets to eight to 12, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's very difficult to set up uh, studies that can give you every single answer. And that's really not what science is, is meant to do. So you have to, conceptualize it and then integrate it into your practice. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just have to be honest about that, you know, and I try to do that in the book, you know, and state that, you know, here's the, here's the rationale based on science. Here's what you might do with that. It's not the only way to do it, you know, but, um, but it certainly makes sense. And I have a fair amount of field experience showing that it's useful. And then finally, and this works for most people, but not everybody. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of the way I try to position it so that I wasn't, you know, being overly strong in my conclusions based on, you know, what is admittedly always going to be slightly limited evidence. Absolutely. So it's so funny you said most of the time there because it reminded me of Mike Isertel's last podcast with Danny Lennon on Sigma. And he was kind of talking about you always get those couple of people at a seminar who just want a black and white answer. So it's all this way. And he's like, no, no. And it, but, but so it's then it's just no. And he's like, and then Mike Isertel was like, with those people, you just got to say this to them. most of the time. <laughs> so yeah. It was just really, really funny that, yeah, that, that, that reminded me of that. But the, the kind of reason I, I um, brought up that last point of, you know, that a lot of this may be sort of like based off some of the empirical kind of anecdotal stuff we've seen from working with clients is, you'll remember this too, that I emailed you um asking about, you know, how do you determine, after you've done protein, how do you determine if someone might do better on a higher fat versus lower carb intake with the rest of their calories versus higher carb fat? And then, just just as I'd sent you that email, I was going through the manual a bit more in depth, and I was like, oh, he has it, he has it here, isn't it? And the, 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 <laughs> it's on page uh, 51, and it's like, but how do I know if a higher fat, lower carb diet is right for me? And you kind of went into that. So maybe could you, could you touch into, like, how someone might know that they might be a little more skewed physiologically, maybe to run a little bit better on a higher fat intake versus carbs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, it's funny. They're, they're, uh, they're, it's, it's kind of the same way as, you know, with, with the, the checking your, your energy expenditure is that mm -hmm. there, you can make some assumptions based on your background and, and, and what conditions you may or may not uh, have. Um, but there's nothing better than the self-tracking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll start with, you know, 
there there are certainly some things that can predispose someone towards maybe handling carbs not as well, to put it simply, and, and that they would perform better or feel better uh, or lose weight more effectively on a higher percentage of fat. Mm-hmm. Um, so now with, I think there's about three studies now um, that are show either, uh, and these are either non-statistically significant or statistically significant, um, where people who are insulin resistant tend to lose weight and lose body fat more effectively on diets that are higher in fat. Um, I think the specific comparisons that, that I can remember off the top of my head were using either a diet that is 40% fat or a diet that was 20% fat and then obviously higher or lower fat, uh, so higher or lower carbohydrate to make up for that difference in calories. Um, and so, so someone who's insulin sensitive probably does better with you know a lower fat, higher carbohydrate diet and then vice versa for someone who's insulin resistant. So then the question is, okay, well, when, when would I be insulin resistant? And in most cases, you wouldn't be if you're reading my book because it's, it's aimed at people who are uh, you know, bodybuilders or strength enthusiasts. Um, not to say that there's no one who's overweight in that, in that field at all. Of course there are. Uh, but if you're exercising relatively young uh, and, and uh, you know, of an average or, or lean body composition, which probably makes up maybe two-thirds of my readers – uh, there's a very low chance that you're insulin resistant. So I, I put that in there. However, if you have a family history of diabetes, uh, if you are overweight, um, if you have PCOS, if you're a female, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, those are all things that independent necessarily of um, of your kind of quote-unquote genetics may have you being more insulin resistant. Um, so those are all kind of useful indicators where you can think about it. Also, if you're, if you're elderly, uh, that can also degrade insulin, uh, sensitivity. So, you know, and there's not a clear cutoff where that is. You know, I've, I've had guys who are, you know, just started competing as masters and I go, I'm 41. Does that mean I have to have, uh, you know, low carbs? And I went, man, dude, the, the science is on elderly people, you know, come on, man, don't have a midlife crisis over here. You're only 40 mm. freaking me out. Cause I'm 34, you know? So, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if, if, if a lot of those factors are all coming into play at the same time, you know, and you also have noticed that you just don't feel right on, on higher carb approaches, then, then maybe you're on to something. So I think, um, so I think it's, it's a useful hypothesis generator. But really the key is to, to spend some time, uh, you know, I'd say a couple months following like a 40% fat diet mm-hmm. and track data, track mood state, and I like to use like 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 uh, kind of calculators for that, calculators, um, rather a Likert scale questionnaire, so like create a spreadsheet where every day you rate your sleep quality, you rate your, your training quality, um, you rate your your hunger levels, and keep it simple, don't do too many, and then also just track your performance and track your weight loss if you're losing weight or, your, or the quality of your weight gain, if you will, um, and then compare it to the similar similar conditions for another couple months and, and swap the ratio to 20% from 40% and do that a couple times so that you know it wasn't some confounding variable and this can take you know this could take an entire off season for a bodybuilder you know a six four six month period perhaps yeah. where they're playing with their their carb to fat ratio and if they're consistently noticing trends that they do better on 40% or 20% that's very useful data um, and if they're noticing no difference then that's also useful data because that means you can eat anywhere in that range you want. So personal preference becomes uh, king, which is, you know, a, a boon for, for adherence. 
So that that's basically what I recommend is that some diligent self-tracking over time uh, be the the method of, of, of assessment. Great stuff. And, and the, the last part then of that uh, level in the hierarchy was fiber. Um, and fiber, I don't want to say it's controversial, but you do hear some people think that it's overrated and then other people think that it's going to fucking cure everything. Um, and again, listen, it, it's going to come back to it depends in context because I've known people with, you know, fairly poor digestive issues, Crohn's or ultracolitis, or just more prone to constipation where more fiber can necessarily not be great for them. Whereas other people, you know, it does wonders for them. Like, you know, so, uh, like I suppose, you know, if we just wanted to make this a little more generalized, we're not really going to talk about medical issues with this. We're just talking about someone who, who has, you know, whatever you want to think healthy digestion is, you know, they don't have any serious health issues in terms of they have a bowel movement or so every day. But, uh, which are fiber recommendations, what what would you go by um, given what you gave in the manual? Yeah, in a real simple sense, I like to just give 10 grams per 1,000 calories consumed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you can go above that, but I wouldn't go too far above it. Yeah. Maybe like 50% higher than that. Because, you know, like you alluded to, you can run into problems from consuming too much fiber mm. uh, as well as too little. Uh, and it depends on the type of fiber and, and not to have a 20-minute discussion about, you know, short-chain fatty acids and insoluble versus soluble. But, um, yeah, too much fiber or, or too little fiber can both be problematic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it also goes hand-in-hand hand with my recommendation around fruits and vegetables, which I recommend also about a cup each per thousand calories consumed and that mm. often just takes care of the fiber in and of itself mm-hmm. yeah. and ensures that you're getting some some pretty benign and useful types of fiber and a good spread of it as well. And I have to say I, I you, you, you actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask later which was your fruit and um, vegetable intake and I really actually like the sort of um, intuitive nature of basing it off a uh, you know a serving off per thousand calories for the fruit and vegetables and then 10 grams per thousand calories it just i thought that was a nice very simple way to get it across and uh, also a very realistic and easy accessible way like i think most people could easily hit those numbers you know in terms of getting those recommendations in but just another thing i just wanted to ask you eric is that i often see with let's say the skinny you know we'll say quote unquote hard gainer they tend to have, you know, the, the, you know, the sort of, oh, no matter how much I eat, I just can't gain weight. And then sometimes, like, you know, uh, you'd ask them, well, show me what you're eating. And then you see a big plate with a load of broccoli and cauliflower on it. And it's like they're eating too much fibrous food and, and therefore not getting the calories in that they need. So in those cases, would you, like, swap out some of those more fibrous vegetables with things maybe, like, easier, like greens, like spinach, and then tell them to maybe, you know, put more calorically dense foods on their plate? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a number of reasons someone can be a quote-unquote hard gainer. And sometimes it's because they have been a little too schooled in the Chicken kind of the restrictive mindset of dieting. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. um, I got to keep you careful, I got to eat clean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they find it really difficult to pack in calories. And they are, you know, they want to get muscular, but they are a little, maybe also a little fearful of, of fat gain, probably too fearful to the point where they just won't overeat or the types of things that they're trying to overeat <laughs> are, are very difficult to overeat. Um, and there should be a period of, of, uh, of mild gluttony in the beginning of any, any kind of uh, future bodybuilders, um, you know, 
weight gaining plan, you know, because that, that period of gaining 1.5% of your body weight per month is, is still like a 200, 300 calorie surplus for, for a fair amount of time, uh, for the average sized person. So, um, so yeah, that, that, that's the time where I start to actually remove satiety inducing elements of the diet. I'll, I'll put their protein at the minimum range of my recommendations. I'll shift them towards fruits and vegetables that are lower in fiber. I'll recommend more eating out mm. where the, mm. uh, and if they can afford it, of course, um, where the, the calorie density per unit of food tends to be higher and, uh, more palatable. So it's easier to get down. I remember for me, when I was, uh, I started off as a relatively skinny guy and I had this problem. Uh, my, my, the best tool I had for weight gain was burritos because, mm-hmm. because they're amazing, you know? Um, so that I was on the, on, the, on the burrito bodybuilding diet for probably about a year and a half. Uh, was that, that's what helped me get over being a, a skinny bastard. So, um, yeah, some of it becomes very pragmatic that you just need to figure out a way to get more calories down. And a lot of the, the methods in the book that are designed towards adherence during a uh, restrictive um, you know, dieting period are the exact opposite of what you want to do. It's, it's funny there that you just brought up what, what would initially seem counterintuitive. You said, I would, I would drop protein a little. Now, obviously, I know you're, you're, we know you're saying you're not dropping it so that you can't build muscle, but in a, in a, because of its, sati- its satiety, uh, the satiation that it brings in a deficit, you don't obviously want that when you're gaining. You just want enough to be able to build muscle. So I think that's a fantastic point to, 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 uh, you know, to come up and a real sort of, oh, I never really thought of it that way. It's a really good point. Yeah, and it comes back to the, the hierarchy. You know, if we know that energy balance is, is, is a little more important than our macronutrient content, um, while we still want to have protein within a, an appropriate range for, for, for weight gain, if, if it's preventing us having too high of an intake of protein is preventing us from getting enough calories, mm. that's kind of short-circuiting the process. So it, it does come back to, so okay, how do I make sure that I understand this, this priority level of importance and is there anything I can do within the context of what makes sense with, you know, to, to feed back into it to, to improve my, my process? So, yeah. yeah, I think that that's it's, it is one of those counterintuitive things. But, you know, I'm working on a meta-analysis with Stu Phillips and uh, Menno Henselmans and Alan Aragon, Brad Schoenfeld, a number, a number of really great people. It's being led by Stu. I have a very small role in it. Um, but, you know, just to, to preliminarily say something about our findings is that uh, the amount of protein it takes to effectively build muscle, because it's not it's not on dieting, is probably around the the uh, the range that I, I recommend at the lower end of, of my, my suggestion. You know, I think I go from 1.8 to 2.8, and that's right in the range that we figured out was was probably where you get the you know you stop getting benefits past that. That's kind of the, the break point yeah. uh, for for muscle gain anyway. So obviously individual mileage will vary, but uh, you know, I think if someone's worried that 1.8 grams per kg is not enough for a weight, for a muscle gain period, uh, it's probably unlikely that they're that that person who who has much higher protein requirements than the mean, and that's probably is plenty. Uh, and there is also evidence that higher intake than that can interfere with weight gain. There's a there's a lot of research from Antonio that's come out recently comparing like three and 3.5 and 4.4 grams per kilogram which is two, two grams per pound mm-hmm. uh, to, to something closer to, say, two grams per kg or 1.8 grams per kg. And uh, weight gain is less. Fat gain is less. They even lose some fat, uh, which, which might indicate that the amount of calories they're reporting consuming are actually 
um, more than what they're actually consuming. Their satiety is becoming you know, problematic because they're eating so much protein. Yeah, and, and another um, another thing I was going to say now, what was it? I had something there in my mind. Oh, it will come to me in a second. I had something that I was going to say. Uh, 1.8. What was I going to say to you there? Oh, it will come back to me in a second. It will come back to you. I had something there in my mind now. It just slipped out. <laughs> Sounds like you got some editing to do in the middle of this. I was just, yeah. <laughs> tech, it's kind of going to annoy me now if I don't, if I don't remember. Um... So moving on from the macronutrients and the um, and fiber, you have the micronutrients, and you brought up a good point in this too, in terms of the inclusive versus exclusive mindset. And another interesting point you brought up was to the one big difference about your macronutrient needs in a cut versus a gaining phase is that in a cut you might be more inclined to get into some deficiencies, depending on how long you are. So. Maybe just speak about the inclusive versus exclusive and then the potential for deficiencies when you're coding for a certain period of time. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, since we get our micronutrients from foods, uh, when you are restricted in calories and you're eating less food, invariably you're going to end up getting less micronutrients. And um, they've done a few studies and uh, basically uh, nutritional quality evaluations of various popular diets, including relatively balanced diets like the you know Ornish diet or the uh, zone diet. I'm trying to think of all the ones that were covered, the DASH diet. But it basically like five or six popular diet plans have been analyzed uh, in terms of their nutritional adequacy. And all of them were found to be missing certain vitamins and minerals. Uh, and then on the same on the same kind of wavelength as that, uh, there's a bunch of nutritional studies done at bodybuilders from like 1989 to early 90s, uh, and they found, maybe even as early as 88, and they found that uh, very consistently there were a handful of vitamins and minerals that bodybuilders were deficient in uh, during contest preparation. Uh, and I would classify the 80s and 90s as kind of the height of the quote-unquote clean eating movement, where everyone was kind of bought into the idea that you eat these certain foods and not, not others, um, and there, you know, there really wasn't the whole flexible dieting concept back then, uh, and everyone was eating, you know, brown rice, sweet potato, uh, tuna, tilapia, chicken, lean meat, and not much else. You know, maybe maybe some olive oil and avocado, and, uh, and that's it. Um, so it's interesting to see that that there were even in people who were trying to quote unquote eat clean and eat healthy. Uh, that they were running into micronutrient deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So it, it probably makes a lot of sense to potentially take a multivitamin. And if you were to look at the uh, the, the, the few systematic reviews and meta-analyses on multivitamins, that they have a, a very small effect you know, on reducing all-cause mortality. Uh, there, there's one specific meta-analysis I'm thinking of. and So they can only help, really, so long as you're taking a reasonable multivitamin, not some kind of like pack of 12 pills that is totally overdosed. Um, in addition to consuming, uh, you know, food from a variety of sources, I think that that in and of itself will help so that you take um, what, what, what I described as an inclusive versus an exclusive mindset towards food. Um, because I think a lot of the schools of thought where you avoid bad foods, quote unquote bad foods, and you consume quote unquote good foods, uh, they end up having rather arbitrary rules on what is good and bad because mm -hmm. there really aren't, you know, bad foods. Um, at best, we have foods that are empty calories. 
You know, they are they provide you with energy, uh, but they don't provide you with much in the way of micronutrition. Um, and I have less of an issue with the term empty calories than I do um, with you know a bad food or a dirty food. Uh, but it's still it's not fully representative of what's happening because a calorie in and of itself isn't empty. It still provides you energy. You know that could you know, help you perform or or just meet your energy requirement for the day. But nonetheless, um, I try to help bodybuilders who often come from a background of of seeing foods in this kind of dichotomous light towards hey let's focus on meeting your needs and then also consuming healthy foods you know or, or micronutrient dense foods. Um, because there's not a food out there that, you know, if you eat it once, you know, in a small dosage, it's going to cause objective harm to you. That just doesn't exist. That's not the way it works. Uh, if your diet was dominated by foods that were low in micronutrients, you could run into problems. Um, and I would say some extreme schools of thought or versions of if, if it fits your macros, where people will basically try to see what they can get away with uh, while still hitting the macros, then, then yeah, you can run into issues. Um, but when anyone has a more or less balanced approach where they're, where they're going, right, I've got a fiber requirement, I'm trying to eat you know, a, a cup of a fruit and veg for every thousand calories I'm consuming, and I'm trying to eat a, a variety of mostly whole food, and then I you know, also indulge myself here and there to increase my adherence, you're going to do probably do even better than those bodybuilders and those surveys who are eating a very, very strict narrow food list, and hopefully avoid uh, those micronutrient deficiencies, which can have... Um, actual real effects on, on performance and, and fat loss and physiology. Mm-hmm. I remember what I was going to say to you. So, All right, so it, it was just just back on the protein. It was one last thing. So yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. In that, um, well, one thing was you were saying. You know, some people thought that one point eight was a bit low. You know, and that one thing that people. This is just me. One people that people that they don't seem to consider is right. We're setting one point eight protein per per you know per whatever um kilograms of their body weight but uh what 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 people don't seem to consider is that there's also going to be bits of protein in the carbohydrates that they're consuming as well like in their sweet potato or their bit of fruit or so that's also going to bump up their protein as well so that's one thing and ideally they're, they're tracking that you yeah. know i think um that that's one of those those common misconceptions you'll see is that people try to categorize food into, into macronutrient groups yeah yeah and and really that that only works for like lean lean meats you know mm-hmm. um because if you know if you consume nuts and you only count the fat you know you're, you're going to be getting some protein and some carbs exactly yeah. you know yeah so uh so yeah if you, if you consume fat and only oh sorry cheese and only count the fat you're, you're missing out on a lot of it's, protein so yeah it's almost analogous to in your training manual where like you were speaking about certain training splits and people go, oh my God, you're only tra- training your shoulders like once a week. And you're like, ah, well, I'm benching twice in other weeks and the shoulders work on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we tend to be a little over, over reductionist with yeah. our concepts in both nutrition and training. And then the last... So, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, you go ahead. That's all. I'm and, just going to read it. And then the, the last thing, um, like, and I, like, this is... It's probably going to sound like such like a beginner question, but you all hear that classic: you can only digest a certain amount of protein per meal. But like everyone goes, like it's it's like thirty grams. But like intuitively, Eric, surely a larger individual. So like I always use the analogy of if I've got a hundred twenty kilo male, say he's a bodybuilder, like and he does a whopper like lower body session, destroys his legs, and you compare that to maybe like a eighty kilo guy who does a lower body session. 
surely the 120 kilo man he can take in and ingest more protein because he's caused more homeostatic disruption so like his threshold might be he could take in 55 grams and utilize every last bit of that versus the 80 kilo he might be more down would, would that be it would that be a, a logical statement to make or am i flawed in that thinking i think it depends on the the verb you're using because the, the root of this misconception or the misconceptions around this concept come from that some people will say digest, some people will say utilize, okay, okay. other people will say benefit from. And I would say probably it is only that, that last one that is rooted in the actual science. Because there is, you know, this, this myth is, didn't come from, from nowhere. Mm. Um, there has been research on what is the maximal amount of muscle protein synthetic response that you get from a single dosing of uh, protein uh, after a workout. And uh, there's been a fair amount of research that shows when you're consuming whey protein, which is not a mixed meal necessarily, uh, that right around 20, 30 grams is where that peaks out. Um, of course, that's the mean value. So you, you could probably assume that someone heavier would, would need more and that there is a body weight relationship one lighter would need less. Yeah. Um, and then there's also been some a recent study that showed when you're doing a full body training session, uh, that number goes up, and that the where you start to get the maximum benefit from is closer to 40 grams of weight. Um, so yeah, it does scale to the amount of muscle mass you trained, and also scales to the amount of muscle mass you have in the absolute sense. Yeah. Um, cool. Also, that that is just acute muscle protein synthesis. That's not necessarily, hey, we took uh, a study of one group that consumed, you know, 10 grams of, of, of whey protein post-workout and then 30 grams, you know, some other time of the day. Uh, and then another group that had all 40 grams post-workout after a full-body workout. Um, and their total protein for the whole day was matched. And after eight weeks, the group that took it 40 grams post-workout gained more muscle. That study doesn't exist. Mm. So, you know, how useful that snapshot-based data is, is questionable in my mind. Um, what we take from that is, I, I would classify this as mechanistic research. It's not applied research. Uh, it's, it's investigating a mechanism, muscle protein synthesis, which should lead to an outcome, muscle growth, versus directly measuring the outcome, muscle growth. So as practitioners and as athletes, we should be primarily focused on uh, applied research, in my opinion, where we're manipulating dietary behaviors and then looking at the effect of actual performance or body composition. So in the absence of you know, that applied research, which we don't have in this case, uh, you maybe want to cover your bases, but you don't want to bet the whole farm on mechanistic research and change your whole lifestyle. So um, you, you shouldn't restructure all of your meals to make sure you never go over that 20 to 40 gram mark of protein because a it's on way how that translates into mixed meals is unknown. Um, and B uh, it's not as though protein doesn't get used. It just won't be necessarily additive to muscle protein synthesis, but our entire body needs these proteins. So perhaps eating more in that case will mean that more protein you consume later goes towards muscle protein synthesis and it may kind of make up for itself. Um, and the data on, consuming protein post-workout and how big of an effect that has versus not is relatively weak, believe it or not, uh, when, when total protein is matched. So while I still recommend people consume protein pre- and post-workout uh, in, in a reasonable amount, say about 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kg 
which would definitely fall in that range we just talked about, you know, 20 to 40 grams is for most people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, 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 I would say it's, it's far more important just to ensure you're hitting your total protein intake for the day. Um, and the distribution is lower down the totem pole, if you will. It's, you know, I was just about to just wrap up the protein uh, discussion on your thoughts sort of on this anabolic window. Because I know Schoenfeld and Aragon obviously put out that paper before and it was just more so maybe just to give a little soundbite. Uh, so soundbites can be dangerous, but just a little more context for listeners in terms of that anabolic window. And you kind of touched on it there that what, what is more important is your global protein intake throughout the course of the day rather than the exact timing of it. But like, is there anything to suggest that there is some benefit from that, even if it's minuscule? So maybe if it's someone stepping on stage, it might benefit more in terms of that timing. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's basically um, evidence to suggest that, that how you spread your protein does matter. Mm. Um, that protein has a maybe a refractory phenomenon that if you were to eat more at one time, that you wouldn't it wouldn't impact muscle protein synthesis. So if you were to consume 40 grams and then 40 grams again only an hour later, uh, that it wouldn't quite peak uh, because you were still assimilating protein uh, into the muscle. Yeah. Um, and thus, therefore, it would be better to not have all of your protein in one meal but to spread it out over multiple meals. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I heard Mike Isertel on Danny's podcast. He spoke about, I'm not 100% sure of the actual study, but they basically had three groups where everything was equal in terms of energy intake and the amount of protein they take and their macro breakdown. But the big difference was one group had two meals per day, one had 10 and one had six. And in terms of MPS, the group that had six meals a day seemed to have the, the greatest MPS response and they, they thought it was due to the spacing of the protein that was optimal. Yeah, and there's a few studies like that. They, they, are, they do have some pretty big limitations though. I believe the study uh, that, that was specifically referred to they were only consuming protein that day. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, a lot of the times it's done with whey, and they're, for example, they're given, you know, 80 grams total, and they get either two 40 gram hits, or uh, four 20 gram hits, or eight 10 gram hits. Is, mm. is the study that I can yeah. specifically remember? I'm pretty sure that was it. Yeah. Yeah, and in that case, the the four 20 gram hits uh, had the highest peak levels of muscle protein synthesis. But again. Uh, I wasn't looking at actual changes in, in lean body mass. Yeah, it was true, uh, muscle protein synthesis, which you would expect would lead to changes in lean body mass, but they don't always perfectly correlate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's again, it, it also comes down to practicality. Like, really, if you're eating, you know, any kind of reasonable number of meals and also having protein around your your workouts, it takes care of itself. You know. If you have, uh, you know, breakfast and then you have lunch and then you train an hour after lunch and then you have a post, post-lunch protein shake, or sorry, post-workout protein shake around, let's say, 3 p.m. and you have dinner around 7 p.m., you've got four meals spread out through the day where you're hitting that threshold if you're also targeting uh, the, the, uh, the 1.8 to 2.8 grams per kilogram per day. You know, if you spread that even roughly into four meals, you're always going to be hitting the, the 20 gram mark in, in, in most cases. So, um, and if you're not, it's because you're a very small person and that's fine. You probably wouldn't need 20 grams at least of way. So yeah, it's one of those things where if your total for the day is taken care of and if you have a reasonable kind of number of meals that you eat in a given day, which I would recommend at least three, 
um, then it's quite easy just to roughly spread them out, roughly spread out your protein and take over them, and you've satisfied all of the theoretical benefits um, of, of protein spread, in my opinion. Great stuff. And then, so just switching gears back to our micros, the, the last thing you touched on the micros was fluid intake. I have to say, when it comes to water intake, there's not a lot of great stuff out there on it. Now, maybe that's just from my little bit of reading, but it was funny again because the recommendations you gave were the exact ones I, I would give to. So the two I always give is I uh, roughly go 25, for every 25 kilograms of body weight, a liter of water. I think you had 23 for, uh, for a liter of water. And then uh, outside of that, go by your urinations, the color of them. And roughly, if you're having, I used to say between four and six, and they're clear, you're probably in a good ballpark. You apply them there based off Lyle's work. So maybe just quickly touch on that. And final thing before you answer this, you're gonna, you're, you're, you're not gonna be uh, too happy with me. I, I have to go very soon, so we might have to do a part two of this. Hey, no worries at all. I'm always happy to be back <laughs> all on. All the, all the listeners yeah. on the here this are like, what? Oh shit. <laughs> but you're gonna get a part two, no, people. You're gonna good. get a part two. It's all good, man. It's all good. Um, yeah, you know the funny thing about about water intake is, is basically the big picture is don't be dehydrated, you know. And and uh, <laughs> we're done. We're done. You're, that's you're, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, that that's what the recommendations are based around, you know. It, yeah, is it that, is. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you lose a certain amount of of, uh, of your body mass from from water, it seems to negatively affect performance. At least when you're talking sports nutrition. Yeah. Uh, that, that's what the focus is. So how much do we think we need to avoid that? And, um, you know, and I like the urinations better because there's huge variation in rates of sweating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you live in a hot climate and you have, and you, and you perspire a lot, you're going to have massively different water needs, uh, than someone who lives in a cold environment. It doesn't, mm-hmm. especially if you're more active than that other person. So, um, yeah, sweating rates have, have a big impact on that. So it's, it's probably more useful just to make sure that you're having multiple clear clear urinations or, or semi-clear urinations per day um, than it is to, yeah, I mean, one liter per 25 kilograms is great. That's that's perfectly fine. That's a good heuristic rule. Or maybe start there um, and then see if uh, that, that gets you to a point where you're you're having, you know, a handful of clear urinations per day and you're probably sorted. Um, I think for most people, the issue is just the practicality of it. Like if you're an office worker, you just forget, you know, I, I sometimes when I'm working on my thesis, I'll have a glass of water when I wake up in the morning with, with breakfast and then I won't drink anything. And, and I look up, it's like, you know, 2 PM, I'm having a late lunch because I've been working on my thesis and I'm like, I have had a glass of water in the last five hours, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it can happen. Yeah. yeah and, and it happens pretty easily to me. Um, and I know other people are like that. Other people have, you know, really strong and frequent uh, thirst signals. I don't, you know, it, it takes me to get to the point where I have a headache and I feel off to realize, oh, maybe I haven't had enough fluids, you know. So, yeah, little tricks like just carrying a water bottle with you yeah. uh, or having reminders on your phone or something like that can be very useful for those of us who struggle to get enough fluids in. Well, what I actually do, and, and anyone that knows me know, knows I do this because they see me, I actually carry, so I always have a bottle of water. I drink, I love Evian water, it's my favorite, but I always pour it into this, it's a, it's a stainless steel beaker and the beaker has like 8, 16 and 24 ounce markings on it so I I know and people always go why do you pour it into that like is it, is it, and I just go, it's purely just a reminder to drink water that I have the beaker with, with me all the time and so I always just make sure I get like this 8 ounces like you know roughly every hour and a half 2 hours and I also these clear urinations so 
that, that, that's, it's, just, it's, it's more so just uh, to stimulate me to drink water more than anything else. It's not like any, like, you know, holistic health kind of thing. I wanted to get out of the plastic and put it in a stainless steel thing to get cold or something like that. But it's just purely <laughs> yeah. to make me drink. It's just a, uh, what would you call it, a si- like a signal, like a regulator to make sure that I drink. The, the other the other method that I might use sometimes is um, I do this more with the sports teams I work with is obviously body weight before and after strenuous exercise um, and then for every sort of uh, pound of weight they've lost we go by kilo so for every sort of kilogram we say maybe have a point of water to replace that would that be something that you come across or would advise or think there's any validity to it? No, no, I think I think that that certainly works for. Um you know, around training recommendations is basically try to get your body weight back to where it was. Cause you know, you, you didn't train so hard. You lost a pound of fat. That's yeah, for yeah. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, you're ruining my dreams there. You're ruining my dreams. But, I know uh, it sucks. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But do you know what? It's, it's, I think that's a really good thing to educate people on because even like I know it's again, some of the students in the college and they often be talking about, Oh, I weighed myself and this, this, and I was like, guys, your, your weight can fluctuate so much just based off your, your fluid level it's a, it's like you know and then you, you know he's painting you know, for instance with carbs it's, a lot of the time what happens initially with carbohydrates due to the, the water it brings into the cell like and um, one just one final thing on that Eric is that I remember Dr. Brian Walsh spoke about this and it's something I need to look up with and I'm just wondering if you know the mechanisms where you can get people who are actually drinking a lot of water but they're still dehydrated at a certain level for some reason it's like it's not getting in the cell or like if we drink like three four liters of water a day and like I remember, he said that they still could be dehydrated at a certain level. Like, have you? Do you know any mechanisms to that? It's maybe to do with like the sodium and potassium and diffusing over the cell membrane and stuff like that. It's probably above my pay grade. You know, that's uh, if if there's if we're talking, you know, cellular hydration, and this this is someone who who studies it, that's their area. They they probably know something I don't. Yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know, it was I mean, like, beyond like beyond like hyponatremia. Yeah, the, the, the kind of the, the common thing where you drink so much water that you know you wash out your electrolytes and run into problems there. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of I can't think of issues where you're drinking enough water and that that causes problems. I mean, that that's a real issue. Though. You know, if if uh, if for people who have a very very high water intake and a very high sweating intake, mm. then you're losing sodium and you're drinking water and you're urinating out sodium until you actually run into having too low sodium levels, which can be life threatening. Yeah. But um, Beyond that, no, I, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that with that mechanism or literature. Or yeah, may, I, again, it's not. I, I would. Uh, I'd have to email him and ask again. And maybe, maybe I'm just remembering what he said wrong. But could could be something that fluid is is it's staining the extracellular matrix and not actually getting within the cell for whatever reason. Maybe due to damage to the cell membrane wall, or you know, and maybe and then you kind of get these people who are holding on to what, like they look kind of puffy and fluidy. Do you know what I mean? Because they're actually holding on to that water again at an extracellular. Standpoint. Well, I don't know. It's it's way above my pay grade. If it's above yours, it's definitely above mine. Believe me. Um, <laughs> so listen, I, I I gotta leave it there for because I and and just for the listeners, Eric got up at six thirty a.m. to do this. Like he's an absolute legend, and, and he put up with a lot of fucking stupid mistakes with time zones with me, and he was so patient as always, and so kind with his patience in general, <laughs> just in time. So I really oh come on yeah, I really appreciate yeah, it. I really appreciate because yeah, you know yourself when I was getting pleasure. when I was getting emails back, I was just like oh this guy must think I'm an absolute dope. Uh, <laughs> Not at all, man. I I know it's. I mean, I, I have to manage time zones a lot across different countries when I work with clients who are going podcasts, so it's yeah. all good. I truly really appreciate uh, you it. being in New Zealand, you being in Ireland, we're, we're across the globe. So, it's so all good. um. 
what we'll do is we'll, I'll do my very, very best, and obviously because I appreciate you're doing your thesis for your PhD. So we, we still just got to finish off with our nutrient timing and frequency and our supplements. And then also very, very important, probably one of the most important pieces was behavior and lifestyle. But I suppose the good thing, it gives me a little chance to maybe just read over some things again in it. So, because I actually, I read your manual probably six weeks ago, so I had to scour through just briefly again today. So it'll give me a little more chance maybe to go in depth a little more in some areas, which will make the part two even better. So it's just about, uh, we'll schedule that at some stage. But, um, so, uh. Uh, before you go, Eric, too, you're going to be in Ireland, so maybe just tell the guys about that, and I will definitely be meeting you there, sir. Yes, so that is going to be the, uh, I believe, the first weekend in July. It is. Um, yep, I'll be in, in, in Ireland doing a uh, European powerlifting conference yeah. with uh, that's hosted by Danny Lennon, and I'll be there with uh, Bryce Lewis, and we'll have just come from Worlds, uh, Brett Gibbs, Mike Tuchere, uh, Greg Knuckles, uh, it's going to be a blast. And yeah, it's um, going to be, un- it's going to be, it's going to be unreal, man. It's, it's going to be like where, like literally, when we saw that, like the guys who I work with in the, in the in where I um, teach in the college and the gym, there's another guy called Cameron Higgs, who's part of there, and we were just like, this is going to be epic. Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to be by far the weakest presenter up there, which is <laughs> it's always exciting. I interviewed so. Mike this year there a few weeks ago. The podcast will be up soon, and I was like. I was like, Mike, I'm not going to lie to you. Me and Cameron are just going to basically rape you for the whole weekend. We will not leave you alone. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just going to be like talking about programming. And it'll get to a stage where people are like, who knows two weirdos just they won't leave Mike to share alone? That's his entourage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, listen. Uh, what a just like absolutely amazing hour and 11, come up to 12 minutes with Eric Helms. An absolute legend of a human being. Wishing the best of luck, obviously, with his PhD work. So thanks for making the time around that, Eric. I really appreciate it. Um, hey, thanks for having me. It's um, an honor. Just stay on for like 30 seconds after I wrap it up and we'll say our goodbye. So, guys, this is part one. Hopefully, we'll have part two out uh, fairly soon. Um, just getting our time zones together. Um, I'm sure no doubt will because I'm, I'm off for most of June, so I can def- I'm way more flexible. So, guys, thanks for listening. Definitely share this podcast out on any social media outlets you can. If you can leave a review on iTunes, I'd be great for bumping this up. Until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.